Hello and welcome to edition number 1907 of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording on Thursday 31st of March in the Methodist Church. I am Debbie Diacon and I edited this edition. Our readers this week are Alan Ravel, Barbara Barringer, Nigel James and Dorothy Allen. Our recording engineer this week is Graham Diacon. As usual, we have items taken mainly from the Whitney Gazette. So our first story is a Whitney Gazette story about our local MP Robert Courts challenging the county council over the closure of the high street to traffic. Yes, the headline is MP says closed high street endangering town centre. Whitney MP Robert Courts has accused Oxfordshire County Council of ignoring the views of residents and traders in its single-minded determination to close the high street. And he said the lack of a long-term plan was causing chaos, with the high street in limbo being neither open nor closed. Mr Courts has written to Tim Bearder, Cabinet Member for Highways at the County Council, saying everyone in Whitney needed to have the opportunity to have their say on the future of the town centre. Mr Bearder approved the closure of the upper part of the High Street and Market Place to motor vehicles, with few exemptions, in December 2020. In his letter, co-signed by Whitney South councillors Mark Johnson and David Harvey, Mr Courts said businesses and residents did not feel listened to both prior to the decision and subsequently when they have expressed concern at the detrimental impact the closure is having on their businesses and daily lives. He referred to the County Council's consultation in which 50% of the respondents opposed the closure and a further 10% expressed concerns. This has led many in Whitney to conclude that the consultation was nothing more than a box-ticking exercise, he wrote. Sadly, the County Council's cavalier attitude and lack of a clear plan either to support traders or for a future plan for the high street appears to be endangering the long-term future of Whitney's centre. Rather than continuing with its dismissive and single-minded approach, we call on the County Council to engage with local residents and traders and ensure Whitney is adequately consulted on a matter which is having a fundamental impact on our town. We also call on the County Council to develop and publish a long-term plan for ensuring that Whitney has a thriving high street for many decades to come. He wrote that residents were profoundly concerned at the chaotic way the council implemented the closure, with no mitigations for offset traffic in Corn Street, Whitton Way and Welsh Way. And he said the misery for drivers had been compounded by the new cycle lane in Corn Street, which also appeared to have been installed without any long-term planning. An Oxfordshire County Council spokesman said it was waiting to hear if it had been successful in its bid for millions of pounds of government funding for the transformation of Whitney Town Centre. The spokesman added, more details on the plans will be available once the outcome is known. Now we have Barbara who will tell us about the tributes to a young local chap who loved his football who has sadly died. That's right. Family pays tribute to generous, hard-working footballer. The family of a footballer who died on the A40 in Oxfordshire have paid a moving tribute to their beautiful, amazing son, 
brother, grandson and friend, Devon. Devon, Dev, right, aged 22, died on March the 18th in the early hours of the morning. The family said it is with great sadness and the heaviest of hearts that on Friday in the early hours we lost our beautiful, amazing son, brother, grandson and friend, Devon, Dev Wright, in tragic circumstances. Devon was handsome, strong and an incredibly popular young man. Dev was only 22, but certainly lived life to the fullest. He was generous and hard-working, and anyone who knew him would recognise his infectious laugh and incredible smile. He was a keen sportsman and particularly loved playing football and golf. Dev played at Haley Football Club and was a member at Whitney Lakes Golf Course, where he spent many hours with friends. He called his brothers. He was also an avid Arsenal supporter and club member. We have been overwhelmed by the love and support shown to us by people he he knew and people he didn't know, all showing their love and respect for our boy. To say he will be missed is the biggest understatement. Dev will always be in ours and many other people's hearts. As a family, we request that we are given time to grieve at this incredibly sad and emotional time. And now Nigel has a story about fly tipping being on the rise. This one is headed, Rise in Fly Tipping Called Blight on the Countryside. More than 6,000 instances of fly tipping were recorded in Oxfordshire last year, costing taxpayers hundreds of thousands of pounds. This is an increase of 43% on the past two years, which were around 4,200 cases per year, according to Oxfordshire County Council. Head of Waste Regulation at the Environment Agency, Steve Molyneux, described the rise as disturbing. He said, It is a waste of criminals with an utter disregard for the environment and for our communities who are to blame. The amount of incidents in the past 12 months has prompted the Oxfordshire Resources and Waste Partnership to start using a so-called scrap code based on an award-winning Hertfordshire campaign to help people avoid fly-tipping. The code requires the public to suspect all waste carriers, check with the environmental agency that the provider taking waste away is licensed, refuse unexpected offers to have waste taken away, and ask what will happen to the waste, make sure that paperwork is obtained. Oxfordshire County Council's Waste Partnership Manager, Vicky Beachy, said, as well as blighting the countryside and local amenity areas, fly-tipping costs local council taxpayers hundreds of thousands of pounds every year to clean up. She said she hopes the campaign will raise awareness of the unlimited fine and prosecution people can face if their waste is found to have been fly-tipped, either by themselves or someone they have hired. Thames Valley Police's Rural Crime Inspector, Stuart Hutchins, said... Fly-tipping is an offence that poses a risk to people and the environment. You can anonymously report suspected illegal waste services to Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 and report waste that has been fly-tipped to the local council. And now Dorothy will read about what David Cameron has been up to recently. Yes, the headline is Monstrous Putin Actions Lambasted by Cameron. 
Ex-British Prime Minister David Cameron has spoken about his four-day journey to Poland, delivering aid to Ukrainian refugees. Travelling as a volunteer for the Chippy Lada, a food community hub run by Chipping Norton Town Councillor Rydzvana Paul, who organised the drive, Mr Cameron took thousands of donations from Chipping Norton to the Red Cross in Poland. These donations had been requested by the Polish Red Cross themselves, co-organised a local farmer, Henry Astor, taking turns to take the wheel of the small lorry they used to get there. The ex-Whitney MP said, The best moment was arriving at the Red Cross warehouse in Poland. Such a relief to see that we had brought the right stuff to the right people in the right place. He added that the great thing about getting home was not having to sit upright in that lorry anymore which he'd had to do for longer than expected due to a tyre blowing out in Germany, setting them back five hours. The 55-year-old dad of four added, It felt good to have done at least something to help people in such dreadful circumstances. That said, as soon as you switch on the TV and see the pictures of what's happening, you realise how much more needs to be done and how badly people are suffering. It's truly monstrous what Putin is doing. In terms of what is next for the group, Mr Cameron said, We need to get ready to help Ukrainian refugees when they come to Oxfordshire. We're lucky in Chipping Norton to have organisations like the Chippy Larder and the branch that can offer really tailored personal help. I'm looking forward to doing my bit. David Cameron's choice to go to Poland received backlash on Twitter from prominent figures such as political commentator Owen Jones, who compared his volunteer work to a serial arsonist joining the local fire brigade. However, Ms Poole, who went with him, backed Mr Cameron by saying his presence was a great morale boost. She said, Our motivation for doing this was to help people in Ukraine and we needed to go out to show our support and solidarity with Ukraine. Our focus was to get the donations there, and then having David with us took it to another level. When those people at the Red Cross saw David, it was so heartening. Chipping Norton-based Mr Cameron has been volunteering at the Chippy Larder for two years, and has worked closely with Councillor Paul during that time. On whether the trip will head back to Poland, Councillor Paul said, If it is required, we will go, but there is a lot we need to do here now. The next, uh, the next story is headline, Beckham Stalker arrived at Cotswold's home. A woman has denied stalking football superstar David Beckham by turning up at his homes and visiting his 10-year-old daughter's school. Sharon Bell is also accused of harassing the former Manchester United and England midfielder by sending multiple letters to his Oxford and London addresses, Westminster Magistrates Court was told this week. The 58-year-old of Boundary Way, Watford, is accused of sending a letter to Mr Beckham's home near Chipping Norton before turning up there on the day it was received, July the 9th last year. The former England captain, who's now 46, got another letter at his London home on September the 9th, with Bell also turning up there on the same day. Bell is accused of sending a third letter, said to have been received by Mr. Beckham's, uh, at Mr. Beckham's London address on October the 6th. On November the 18th, 
she allegedly turned up at the primary school of his daughter, Harper, in a bid to see her. Bell claims to have had some form of relationship with Mr Beckham, something the ex-Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain, AC Milan and LA Galaxy star is said to have denied. She appeared in court via video link and spoke only to confirm her identity and enter a plea of not guilty. She was given conditional bail ahead of a trial at the same court on July 12th and 13th this year. I've got two short items. Five bunnies hiding out inside Westgate Centre. Shoppers will be invited to go on an Easter bunny trail at Oxford Westgate Centre next week. The trail, named Burrowing Bunnies and Time for the School Holiday Period, will include five bunnies for the people to find, including a giant one somewhere in Leiden Square. Trail maps of the centre can be collected for free from the guest experience desk on the upper ground floor. When they are returned completed, the participant will win a treat. The attraction is running for two weeks, from Friday, April the 8th to Sunday, April the 24th. And there's a very nice poster of a bunny advertising Easter Trail so that they can hunt out the five bunnies. And the second item is satisfaction questions. Whitney Town Council wants views and comments on the services it provides. It looks after allotments, cemeteries, civic and, and organisations, events, grants to voluntary organisations, sports pitches, public halls, ten recreation grounds, the town hall and street scene. Its projects include work on the corn exchange and the Christmas lights display. It will stage events to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. The Satisfaction Survey 2022 is at www.surveymonkey.co.uk Oh, sorry, .co.uk um, slash, and it's under County Town Ca- I'm sorry, under Whitney Town Council. The closing date is April the 30th. Our next item is headed Community Groups and Projects Given Financial Support. West Oxfordshire District Council is distributing about £200,000 to 13 community groups and projects. Jane Doughty, Cabinet Member for Customer Delivery, said... I'm very pleased to say we are able to give out this grant funding to groups and projects across West Oxfordshire to help them to continue to, live, to, to deliver great work in our communities. Through our budget setting process, we made sure to continue this funding. The organisations have been able to demonstrate to us the value they are adding across the district and it's important that we help these amazing local organisations when funding streams are coming harder for them to come by. The organisations were supported uh, by help across a wide range of areas, from protecting the environment to supporting people with additional needs. They all do a brilliant job, and we are happy to be able to support them with their work. The Council has agreed to give out grant funding to the following organisations. The Thomas Gifford Trust, 5700 Wild Oxfordshire, £2,000, 
Community First Oxfordshire, £12,000. Cotswold Conservation Board, 10300 Volunteer Link Up, 12000 Home Start Oxford, 5000 My Life, My Choice, £4,251. Chipping Norton Theatre, 25900 Lower Windrush Valley Project, £5,000. Home Start Banbury, 2900 And the Witchwood Project, £30,000. The headline for this item is Cocaine Gang's Sentencing Delayed by Court Pressure. Members of a crime gang that flooded the region with top-quality cocaine have been told they will be sentenced next month. Kingpin Richard Gray, 32, and his older brother and trusted lieutenant Patrick Gray, 44, had been due to be sentenced last Friday morning, together with four other members of the conspiracy. However, lack of court time meant that the hearing had to be put back for a month. Judge Michael Gledhill QC told the seven barristers at Oxford Crown Court on Friday, I'm sorry that we've not been able to list this case for sentence today. There are a number of reasons for that. Not least, I am part heard with the jury out deliberating at the moment. The Grey brothers are expected to be sentenced on April the 28th, with the remainder of the gang dealt with on the following day. Patrick Gray and downstream customer Muhammad Ali, 50, were convicted at the start of the year of conspiracy to supply Class A drugs. Jurors at Oxford Crown Court heard that the gang supplied at least 50 kilograms of cocaine over more than a year in 2020 and 2021. Gang leader Richard set up a fake courier business to make it easier for him to move across the country during lockdown. He was recorded on a secret police probe fitted to Gray's specially adapted white van, bragging about his illegal business. In one call with his brother Patrick, he bragged that they would be able to live the life of Ryan, i.e. Riley, if they were kept if they kept up the business and fun- funneled the profits from their dealing into a property empire. Gray sent couriers north to Preston and Bury to pick up two kilos of cocaine at a time. In May last year, he took a consignment of 12 kilograms of cocaine hidden in a gas canister. The drugs were taken to a stash house in Banbury. Cutting agents used to dilute the cocaine were found at Lower Whitley Farm near Farmore Reservoir. Police pounced in late May 2021 after a lengthy undercover investigation that was launched when the force's organised crime squad was handed a file of Encro chat messages from Richard Gray, arranging cocaine deals with others on the heavily encrypted telephone network. In coordinated raids on properties in Oxford, Whitney, Banbury and Milton Keynes, detectives seized 2.5 kilograms of high-purity cocaine and around £110,000 in cash. The defendants are Richard Gray of Furrow Crescent, Whitney, Patrick Gray of Radford Close, Oxford, Muhammad Ali of Cherville, Milton Keynes, Lewis Court, 36 of Scott Close, Gidlington, Jamie Shepherd smith 33 of Bramling Cross, Abingdon, and William White, 36, of No Fixed Address. And the next story is about uh, William Morris and Kelmscott Manor. The headline is, Morris's Heaven on Earth Reopens After £6 million of Work. 
William Morris's Heaven on Earth Rural Retreat reopens on Friday, that's tomorrow, as we're recording this, following a £6 million renovation. Morris, a towering figure in the arts and crafts movement, was a pioneering designer, author, architectural conservationist and social reformer who rented Kelmscott Manor for 25 years until his death in 1896. But the property needed extensive remedial work, including measures to stop water getting through the brickwork. Morris's daughter, May Morris, herself an influential embroideress and designer, lived in the manor after Morris's death and was very involved in village life, starting the first Oxfordshire branch of the Women's Institute. She kept the house unchanged, almost as a shrine to her father, and since 1962 it has been owned by an educational charity, the Society of Antiquaries of London. Property manager Gavin Williams said, The roof was rotten and the weight of it was pushing down the partitions into the floor. The house was in danger of imploding. Building work by Biggs Construction was made possible by a £4.3 million grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, as well as generous donations and £1.3 million from the Kelmscott Manor Past, Present and Future campaign, which continues to raise funds. The renovation started in November 2019, but was interrupted by covid Mr Williams said, it all came to a grinding halt. We hoped to reopen on the 150th anniversary of Morris coming to Kelmscott, which was last year, but it was delayed, so instead we concentrated on presenting the house as we wanted it. Martin Levy, a leading expert on Morris and chairman of the Kelmscott campaign, said... Using inventories, photographs and watercolours, the curator, Cathy Haslam, has done archaeological research into how the house looked while Morris was there. They've been able to place furniture and objects where they were originally, so you get a feeling of a house that's lived in rather than a cold, museum-like shrine. The curator has really brought Morris's heaven on earth to life. I've been bowled over by the richness of the colours in the rooms. The manor was built around 1600 for a working farmer and Morris loved its unpretentious architecture as his ethos was that one should have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. He described the village of Kelmscott near Lechlade as heaven on earth and is buried in the, ch- in the churchyard. He profoundly influenced interior decoration with his tapestries, wallpaper, fabrics, furniture and stained glass windows in designs which are still produced today. And many of his most popular enduring designs drew on the flora and fauna in the surrounding landscape. For example, his classic furnishing textile, Strawberry Thief, which decorates the old hall inside the building, was inspired by watching thrushes steal strawberries outside the manor. And willows growing around the house shaped his famous willow bough pattern. Now, there are two photographs uh, with this story. One is a room inside the manor, uh, which appears to have a tapestry on all the walls. Um, Not like any wallpaper I've seen, 
but uh, it is very striking. Uh, the other picture is uh, of William Morris's bedroom, uh, which includes a bookcase full of books, uh, marvellous wallpapers, um, carpeting on the floors or rugs on the floors, and an odd four-poster bed, which at the top of it uh, has a poem, which apparently was sewn onto fabric by his daughter May and put around the room. Sentence date fixed for man guilty of rape. A judge fixed the sentencing date of a van driver who killed his passenger after the defendant was convicted of raping a woman in 2019. Jurors took a day to unanimously find Jordan Wall, 25, guilty of rape after a week-long trial at Oxford Crown Court. He was said to have assaulted the woman in Carterton in September 2019. Recorder Michael Rokes remanded him in custody to return to court on April the 26th for sentence. Sentencing the 11 strong jury, oh sorry, sending the 11 strong jury away, the judge said, thank you very much indeed for the very close attention that it is clear to all of us that you have paid in this case. You've been given a very difficult case to try, but it is a very important civic duty to give up time for jury service. There are very few civic duties, but this really is an extremely important one. Earlier this month, Wall pleaded guilty to causing the death of Matthew Hammonds by dangerous driving in Thorny Lees, Whitney. Mr Hammonds, 25, a base maintenance engineer at Air Tanker in Carterton, was the passenger in Wall's Fort van when it crashed into metal railings on July 11th, 2020. After taking Wall's guilty plea, the case was adjourned by Judge Nigel Nigel Daly until the conclusion of his sexual assault trial. Our next item is headed Electric Charging at Five New Sites. Electric vehicles can soon be charged at five car parks in West Oxfordshire. Newly upgraded car parks will include 32 smart, easy charge, fast charging units covering 64 parking bays. Woodford Way car park in Whitney is expected to go live first by early April. The four other car parks which are due to come online within the next couple of weeks are Back Lane Ensham, New Street Chipping Norton, Blackbourton Road Carterton and Hensington Road Woodstock. Each will offer both tethered and socketed chargers and can be used with Type 1 or Type 2 connections. It's part of a project to roll out electric vehicles charging points across the county. The Park and Charge Oxfordshire project will provide more places to charge on the go and allow residents without off-street parking to park for free overnight and charge their electric vehicles at a competitive price. David Harvey, Cabinet Member for Climate Change, said the take-up of electric vehicles is increasing at an ever-increasing rate and adoption of ultra-low emission vehicles in Oxfordshire is particularly high compared to the UK average. So it's crucial that we have infrastructure in place to support those drivers who have already made the switch to electric whilst encouraging those that are thinking about making the move to do so. 
The new chargers have been designed and produced by Bista-based company Easy Charge, who will operate them. Pete Sudbury, Oxfordshire County Council's Cabinet Member for Climate Change and Environment, said many councils have already had residents who don't have off-street parking asking about charging electric vehicles. And we at the County Council know we need to accelerate the different solutions to that problem. The District Council is in early discussions to identify more rural locations where charging points could be installed. And it is working with its own provider, EB Charging, on a separate project which will see four 7-kilowatt charging units installed in Burford Car Park, providing eight charging bays under the first phase of planned works. A grant application will now be submitted to the government with a final decision made on the installation in late spring. So now we'd like to welcome Jean Thompson, who's taken over from Dorothy. This piece is entitled Man Dies After Car Crash Near Turnpike Pub. A man died in hospital after a car crash earlier this month. Thames Valley Police is now appealing for witnesses following the crash. At about 1.35 on Saturday, March the 19th, police were called to a collision between a Porsche 911 and a Vauxhall Astra on the A44 near to the Turnpike Pub in Yarnton. The driver of the Porsche, a man in his 60s, and his passenger, a woman in her 60s, attended the John Radcliffe Hospital as a result of the incident. The man died in hospital. Police say his next of kin have been informed and are being supported by specialist officers. The woman has since been discharged from hospital. Investigating Officer PC Brian Perry of the Joint Roads Policing Unit, based at Bister House Lane, said, I'm appealing for anyone who may have witnessed this situation, the collision, or other, either vehicle prior to the incident to please get in touch. If you were in the area around the time and have dash cam footage, I'd also ask that you check any recordings in case it has been captured. Sorry, in case it has captured something that could assist our investigation. So Alan, Barbara, Nigel and Jean will be back with more stories soon, but now it's the editor's choice of articles. And this week I'm going to read an article by an award-winning nature writer, James Lowen, from the March edition of The Countryman magazine, entitled SOS Save Our Squirrels. The article has many pictures of these little chaps eating, jumping, climbing and foraging. Growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, red squirrels were part of my life, but there was a catch. The squirrels I knew were cultural icons, not real-life animals. Following a lengthy population decline, there were no red squirrels in my home county of Yorkshire, and we never saw them on family holidays elsewhere. Instead, I knew and loved this gorgeous chestnut mammal thanks to Beatrice Potter's character, Squirrel Nutkins, and to Tufty Fluffytail, who the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents created to teach children road safety. Was anyone else a member of the Tufty Club? 
Though my parents saw these bushy-tailed, bright-eyed and wispy-eared rodents on their family holidays 30 years earlier, by then the red squirrels' distribution and abundance were already mere shadows of their previous might, partly due to widespread deforestation in the 19th century, and things have got worse since. Nationally, the red squirrel is considered endangered. Nobody knows precisely how many remain, but an oft-quoted number is 140,000, about one for every 20 grey squirrels, which must represent a steepling decline for a species thought abundant at the turn of the 19th century. Three-quarters of today's reds reside in Scotland, where the animal was beaten only by the golden eagle in a public poll to decide the country's favourite creature. Mentioning grey squirrel is important because it is fingered for much of the problems that our native reds have been facing. The larger North American species has replaced red in many parts of Britain, but the reasons for this are the subject of hot debate. Are grey squirrels first imported here in 1876, subsequently spreading throughout much of Britain, causing red's decline or a beneficiary of it? Over the past century, the main direct killer of red squirrels has been squirrel pox virus, a disease to which the grey squirrel is largely resistant. The grey's survival has enabled them to spread into areas at red's expense and this has expanded transmission further. Moreover, where red and grey squirrels coexist, greys seem to hinder red squirrels as the interlopers raid the native species' food caches and eat unripe nuts before red squirrels are able to digest them. This means that Wherever the species come into contact, greys outcompete reds, so Tufty Fluffytail cannot reclaim its former territory. Whether grey squirrels are direct or indirect culprits, it is striking that several remnant populations in England and Wales lie on islands to which grey squirrels have no access, short of leaping onto a boat. On Dorset's Brownsea Island, the Isle of Wight and Anglesey, red squirrels can prove every bit as tame and crowd-pleasing as greys in urban parks. Nowadays, red squirrels mainly inhabit the canopy of large coniferous forests, where they feed on seeds, nuts, berries and fungi. Although red red squirrels are active year-round, autumn is a good season to see them, as they race against time, hyperactively hiding seasonal bounty ahead of harder times during winter. Each squirrel builds several nests, called drays, moving between them as conditions and daily wanderings dictate. Each home may look like a scraggly assemblance of twigs, but it is actually a robust, well-insulated construction. A thermal imager confirms that no heat escapes through the dray's dense internal layers of leaves, moss and feathers. In today's energy-saving age, perhaps we householders should learn something from that. A squirrel pox vaccine is in development, but will take many years to become practical and affordable on a large scale. This means that a key current solution is to cull grey squirrels through through humane means in carefully chosen areas 
normally around red squirrel strongholds. In the September 2021 edition of this magazine, Glenys Munro reported on her experiences assisting a Woodland Trust and Trees for Life project to reintroduce reds in the Scottish Highlands. Another study has suggested that more than 20 existing forests, including those managed for timber, could act as natural strongholds for reds, as the woodlands are less suitable for grey squirrels. Meanwhile, saving Scotland's red squirrels engages communities, encouraging them to reduce the spread of disease by regularly disinfecting equipment at feeding stations visited by red squirrels. Despite the red squirrel's parlous status, this all offers cause for optimism. My young daughter has already seen squirrel nutkin on our family holidays. Might her children one day have red squirrel in their gardens? So, uh, now I'm going to, we, now we have the answers to last week's quiz. So question one was, which flower is particularly associated with the arrival of spring in Japan? Answer? Cherry. Cherry, Cherry blossom. I'm not allowed to do this because I set them last week. I know you did. <laughs> Question two. In Roman mythology, who is known as the goddess of spring? Answer? Flora. Question three. What do we call the vegetable that is known in the USA as scallions? Answer? Spring onions. Spring onions. Question four. Spring wasn't always referred to as spring. Until the 16th century, what was the first season of the year called? Lent. Question five. Which ancient building, not in this country, was constructed facing the direction where the sun rises on the first day of spring? Answer. A temple in Egypt. The Great Sphinx. Okay. You're probably close. (laughs) (laughs) And now to this week's questions, and I thought we could stay with the theme of animals. So question one, what creatures were frequently used to bleed patients in the 19th century? Question two, what does a butterfly use to taste? Question three, which mammal has the longest gestation period? Question four, what is the world's largest mammal? And question five, I think you get two points if you get this one. What is the collective name for ducks? And now to our notice board. Um... First of all, we'd like to remind you of the organisation called the Torch Fellowship. Torch provides advice, support, opportunities for fellowship and library services free of charge to registered blind and partially sighted people. They normally meet on the first Saturday of every month, so that will be this week, uh, at 2pm in the Welcome Church, High Street, Whitney, so uh, as I said, on Saturday 2nd of April. New members are very welcome, and the contact number is 01993 
891639. So um, now we come to birthdays. So first of all, I'd like to apologise for having omitted Tony Barringer on the 1st of March. I think that was probably my mistake, Tony, so I do apologise. We also need to acknowledge the birthday of Katie Dumas in Whitney and Dennis Warner from Chipping Norton. And now I'm going to read the deaths that have been announced in the Whitney Gazette this week. And I'm sorry to say there are ten. Kirsten Abigail Longshaw, suddenly at home in St Albans on 12th of March, aged 26 but her family is local. Eveline Joan Timms, aged 79, on the 13th of March. Bernard George Wellstood, aged 84, on the 16th of March. Margaret Daisy Govia, aged 89, on the 17th of March. Ruby Riches, former head teacher of Clanfield Primary School, aged 101, on the 19th of March. Audrey Blakely, aged 89, on the 20th of March. Mary Taylor, aged 86, on the 21st of March. Linda Locke, aged 87, on the 26th of March. Peter Beadie, aged 89, on the 27th of March. And Valerie Taylor, no age or date given. So we send our condolences to family and friends. Now, Alan has the sport, and then we'll finish with another round of articles from the news pages. And it's Banbury United who make the back page headlines in the Whitney Gazette this week. And the headline says, One Step Closer to Winning Title. Andy Wing the manager, was full of praise for his Banbury United players who just missed the chance to secure the league title as their closest rivals also won at the weekend. Banbury's 3-1 win at Lowestoft Town wasn't enough as Colville Town's 3-0 victory at Leiston ensured that Andy Wing's team would have to wait another week for the chance to claim the title. Banbury, known as the Puritans, went into the game with a 20-point lead ahead of Colville in the Southern League Premier Central. But Colville have two games in hand. Banbury were up against a lower side side, a lower stoffed side who are rock bottom of the league and four points adrift in the relegation zone prior to kickoff. However, the Suffolk side headed into the game after beating Colville 3-2 to secure an invaluable three points last time they played. Wing said his players rose to the occasion in the first half, playing with a high intensity from kick-off. The Banbury boss said, All we can do is our job and win football games. We're 20 points clear, and if it doesn't happen next time, we just carry on and do our job. We were absolutely fantastic on Saturday. They're a battling and fighting side and we knew it would be a tough test for us. We spoke about starting on the front foot with quick throw-ins and free kicks and the first half was one of the best of the season. We had, the, we had chance after chance and kept going. 
The only criticism I have is that we didn't score earlier. Banbury still have five more games to seal the league title, starting with a home game against Tamworth on Saturday. The Staffordshire outfit are unbeaten in seven matches since Andy Peakes took over as manager last month and Wing acknowledged that Tamworth would be, a stern, would be stern opposition for Banbury to try again and secure that league title. There's a picture being released in connection with 30 offences across the UK. Police have released an image of a man they want to speak with about a burglary investigation. The photograph, released by Thames Valley Police, shows a white man with brown hair who is wearing a dark navy blue hoodie and a black face mask. A group of raiders are suspected of committing 30 offences, including home burglaries and vehicle thefts, between August 4th and 21st last year. The offences took place in Cherwell, West Oxfordshire, South Oxfordshire and the Vale of Whitehorse, as well as policing areas in Reading, Wiltshire, the West Midlands and West Mercia. Detective Constable Jamie Lewis, based at Abingdon Police Station, said... We're releasing the image of this man as we believe he may have information that could assist us with our investigation. If it is you pictured, or some, if somebody that you know has looked at this thing, um, please get in touch. You can report information by calling 101. Alternatively, if you wish to remain anonymous, you can contact the Independent Charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 or via their website. And now we have two short items. The first one is headed Brewery Fundraising for Ukraine by Selling Beer. A brewery has got involved in a beer campaign to help raise funds for the Red Cross's humanitarian relief efforts. The Drinkers for Ukraine campaign has asked breweries around the world to brew the Ukrainian anti-imperial stout Resist. Hook Norton Brewery, near Chipping Norton, has brewed its own version of the stout, which is 6% in strength and infused with beetroot. The brewery called the campaign a real community effort after a request for help on the Hook Norton Village Facebook page meant the required amount of beetroot was delivered, cooked and ready to go into the brew. The resulting brew is now available at the brewery and in selected Hook Norton pubs, with money raised going directly to the Red Cross Disasters Emergency Committee. The second item is headed Minerals Monitoring Work. The latest Minerals and Waste Authority monitoring report has been approved by Oxfordshire County Council. The council rubber-stamped its report for the 2019 calendar year during a meeting on Thursday, March the 24th. It's a requirement for the Council to prepare and publish the report. It must outline implementation of the Minerals and Waste Development Scheme, the programme for preparation of the Minerals and Waste Local Plan, and on the extent to which local plan policies are being achieved. Dr Peter Sudbury, the Authority's Cabinet Member for Climate Change and Delivery and Environment, who chaired the meeting, called the report uncontroversial and said he didn't see any reason why not to accept it. 
and praise the officers who prepared the report for their very fine work. This piece is called Penalty for Phone Check in New Rules. Checking the time on your phone while driving could see you hit with a £200 on-the-spot fine and penalty points under new rules that have come into force. The change in law makes it illegal for a driver to hold and use a device regardless of why they are using it. There are only two exemptions to the prohibition. A driver can use a phone in an emergency and to make a contactless payment while their car is stationary. Sergeant Dave Hazlitt of Thames Valley Police's Road Safety Unit said, Data shows you are four times more likely to be involved in a collision if you use a mobile phone while driving. The consequences of using a mobile phone at the wheel can be catastrophic and you are placing not only yourself but other road users at significant risk. While the large majority of motorists will already avoid using their phone in these circumstances, this is an important change and one all road users should take note of. This change to the legislation closes several loopholes and is an important step forward for road safety. The new rules make it illegal for drivers to hold their phones and do the following. Illuminate the screen, check the time, check notifications, unlock the device, make, receive or reject a telephone or internet-based call, send, receive or upload a photo or video, use camera, video or sound recording, draft any text, access any stored data, such as documents, books, audio files, photos, videos, films, playlists, notes or messages. Access an app, access the internet. Those caught breaking the rules face an on-the-spot £200 fine and penalty points on their licence. The rule change is an updating of the Road Vehicles Regulations 1986 which was brought in after a number of recent court cases. They included one in 2019 where a passing driver who used their mobile to film a crash was found not guilty because they were not using a handheld mobile device for interactive communication. According to Department for Transport Figures, 17 people were killed across the country in 2020 in road accidents where the driver was using a mobile phone. A further 114 people were seriously injured and 385 people suffered minor injuries. And there are two more short items. The first one's headlined, People in Court for Being in Charge in charge of Danger Dog. Two people from Oxfordshire have been taken to court in the last six months for being in charge of a dangerous dog. Julian Dore, 44, of Longor in Stonesfield, appeared before Oxford Magistrates Court on December the 15th. Dore was found to have been in charge of a Caucasian shepherd dog named Freya, 
which was dangerously out of control in Pendle Court on June 30, 2020, and it injured a man. George Collett, of Field Close, also in Stonesfield, also appeared at court on December 15. The 33-year-old was charged over was charged over being in, in charge of Freya, the same dog. The men were each fined £100, made to pay compensation of £300, a victim surcharge of £34 and costs of £85. Court documents stated that unless the dog was kept under proper control by use of a muzzle, there was third-party liability insurance and that someone over the age of 18 was in charge, then it must be destroyed. The Crown Prosecution Service states, if any dog is dangerously out of control, the person in charge of it is guilty of an offence. And the second item is headed, Police Find Man's Body. A body has been found following a search for a missing man. The body of 68-year-old Robert Kellis of Burford was found by Thames Valley Police. The force have said there were not believed to be any suspicious circumstances and a file is being prepared for the coroner. Mr Careless was last seen leaving the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford on Tuesday of last week. Police believed he could have been in the Christchurch Meadow or Thames footpath area of Oxford, but they've released no further details. Car spotted on wrong side of road by off-duty police officer. An off-duty police officer spotted the driver of a black Astra pull out of a line of traffic and drive the wrong way up a Whitney Street before pulling back into the rush hour jam. PC Charlie Hayes told Oxford Crown Court he heard hooting horns and saw brake lights come on as the Vauxhall hatchback came face to face with cars coming in the opposite direction down Mill Street on November the 27th, 2020. He noted the vehicle's registration, repeating it to himself before he was able to write it down on a scrap of paper. Camilla Metcalf, 58, was the mobility vehicle's registered keeper and the only person insured to drive it. When PC Hayes visited her flat in a sheltered accommodation block in Whitney later that evening, having run the number plate through a police database, she would not speak to him. She was not formally interviewed until February 2021, when she told the officer she had no memory of driving the car on the day in question. She denied being a careless driver. Magistrates found Metcalf of Buttercross Lane Whitney guilty of careless driving at a hearing last year. She appealed that conviction to the Crown Court. At a hearing at Oxford Crown Court on Friday, Gareth James for Metcalf suggested to PC Hayes that he had noted down the wrong registration plate. I'm going to suggest to you The Black Astra was ahead of you in the traffic jam all the time, the solicitor said. The officer replied, that is not correct. He said, he had seen the Astra in his mirrors before it passed him. Then it pulled back into the line of traffic, several cars in front of him. The policeman had not seen whether the driver of the car was male or female, he said. 
In his closing submissions, Mr James told the judge and two magistrates, hearing the appeal, that they could not be sure to the criminal standard that his client was the driver who made the overtaking manoeuvre. Metcalf did not give evidence to the appeal. Recorder Michael Rokes and two justices rejected the appeal, finding that Metcalf was the driver and she drove on the opposite side of the carriageway, overtaking a line of traffic. We have no hesitation at all in finding that we are sure the appellant is guilty of driving without due care and attention, he said. The panel did not change the sentence Metcalf received in the magistrate's court of three penalty points and a £100 fine, but they added an additional £200 costs to the prosecution service. This next item's headed Ambulance Staff Back in Returning TV Series. Crews working for the South Central Ambulance Service in Oxfordshire are featuring in a new series of Inside the Ambulance. The series follows paramedics from Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Hampshire and Oxfordshire as they carry out their duties. Staff working for the NHS Foundation Trust's Oxford City Resource Centre were filmed during October and November last year. The 10-episode series, which is the 13th of the long-running show, covers a range of 999 emergencies, from gas explosions and road traffic collisions to heart attacks and broken bones. Body-mounted cameras were used to follow the crews, as well as cameras being placed inside the ambulances. Gus McCulloch, a paramedic, and Hannah Foggett, an emergency care assistant, both took part in the show for the first time. They can be seen across several episodes responding to a cycle accident, an assault, and a lorry driver who was injured when a branch smashed through his windscreen on a dual carriageway. Mr McCulloch said, The filming for Inside the Ambulance was great fun, with enjoyment, banter and laughter, but also nerve-wracking at times. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone involved and to all those behind the scenes who make everything run as seamlessly as possible. I know both Hannah and myself and our extended Green family are very excited to see the new series in full. Paramedic Susie Patience will be appearing in the show for the third time after being filmed in January through to March of 2020, before the first coronavirus pandemic lockdown. She said it was nice to be involved again with Inside the Ambulance, though there were, of course, plenty of changes since they last filmed. Whilst the job and the patients remained largely the same, how we look certainly has altered. Masks and other PPE are now our normal, our normal attire, and I lost count of how many times I managed to get my apron stuck on the cameras. Student paramedic uh, Kasha Norbert Nelson is also returning to the show, with the new series being her second. She said it was an exciting but also nerve-wracking opportunity, knowing that your work is going to be seen by lots of people and possibly scrutinised. However, I found it a great experience and the production crew guided us and helped us get through the day much more relaxed than stressed. The first episode was screened on Monday night on the W channel, available via Sky and Virgin. And finally, I have a piece called Sun Seekers Enjoy Brief Burst of Weekend Sunshine. There's a photograph um, of the sun on Church Green, Whitney, and the church is in the background, 
and there are several groups of people sitting on the grass, some clearly enjoying a picnic, others possibly just chatting. It may only have been the end of March, but it felt more like the height of summer at the weekend as Whitney in West Oxfordshire basked in balmy temperatures of up to 40 degrees centigrade on Saturday and a slightly cooler 35 degrees centigrade on Sunday. Sunseekers flocked to local beauty spots, such as Blenheim Palace and Minster Lovell, enjoyed outdoor games and picnics in parks and open spaces, such as Whitney's Church Green and the Lays, and packed pub and cafe gardens, bringing a welcome boost to takings for businesses still reeling from the effects of the excuse me, of the coronavirus pandemic and the wet and windy weather of recent weeks. While the temperatures have fallen and the sun momentarily disappeared, it is expected to make a fleeting return tomorrow and on Friday, so that was last Thursday and Friday. However, the temperature is not expected to rise much above 7 degrees centigrade and could fall to 2 degrees overnight. Wrap up warm. Well, that completes this edition. Our thanks go to the Whitney Gazette for the articles we've used this week and my article from The Countryman. And my special thanks to our recording engineer, Graham Diacom. Thank you also to our readers this week, Alan, Barbara, Nigel and Jean, and Dorothy, who read in the early part. Our admin team this week was Shirley Rawlings and Dorothy Allen. And our copiers and packers are Ian Rose and Mike Herbert. So thank you to them too. So keep listening at the end and the TNF radio highlights and audio described TV listings will follow. But I know everyone at Whitney Talking News would like to wish you well and on their behalf, until our next edition, we all say goodbye. Goodbye. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, April 2nd. My favourite husband at 12 noon on Radio 4 Extra, starring Lucille Ball, a precursor to the TV series I Love Lucy, starring Lucille Ball. The latest in the Fact to Fiction series on Radio 4 is a drama at 2.45, Jabba Jabba, by Mark Lawson, which considers unvaccinated healthcare workers. Opera on 3 at 6.30 is Eugene Onigan. And Inside Music at 7pm on Radio 4 Extra looks at the creative process from score to encore. The subject of Archive on 4 at 8pm is the Ministry of Fun looks at how governments face up to a post-Covid future as they struggle to quantify the success of the arts. Radio 2 at 8pm has The Rock Show with Johnny Walker if you prefer. While at 9pm on Classic FM, David Mellor's Melodies can be heard. On to Sunday, April 3rd. The early music show at 2 o'clock on Radio 3 visits Cambridge to look at treasured items of Handel memorabilia in the Fitzwilliam Museum. The drama at 3 o'clock on Radio 4 is Carol Capex's 1921 futuristic comedy, Rossum's Universal Robots. John Humphreys is at 4 o'clock on Classic FM till 7 for an afternoon of his musical choices, including Mozart's Flute Concerto. 
At 8pm on Radio 4 Extra, find out How to Murder Your Husband, a comic play by Julie Rutterford. And 9 o'clock, there's a choice between Wogan in his own words on Radio 2 or from Couch to Opera House on Classic FM, which aims to demystify opera for those new to it and presented by Jennifer Saunders. While the subject of analysis at 9.30 on Radio 4 is the dictator's survival guide. On to programmes then that are serialised Monday to Friday, same time, same radio station, every day of the week. Book of the Week on Radio 4 at 9.45 from Monday to Friday is Hybrid Humans by Harry Parker, an ex-soldier who examines technological advances in prosthetics throughout history. Composer of the Week on Radio 3 at noon is Elmer Bernstein. A show of hands at 1.45 on Radio 4 considers the importance of the human hand. All week, at 8 o'clock, the Classic FM concert presents a showcase of recordings released this year. It's presented by John Suchet. The Lost Stradivarius, a suspense tale from 1895, is on Radio 4 Extra from Monday to Thursday at the same time 6pm, while Book of Bedtime at 10.45 on Radio 4 is Damon Gadget's 2021 Booker Prize novel, The Promise. On to the rest of the radio highlights then, starting with Monday, April 4th at 2.15 on Radio 4. Hugh Bonneville stars in a drama about the painting of the Hall of the Royal Navy College, Greenwich, by the artist James Thornhill, which took 20 years to complete. A new series of Beyond Belief is at 4.30 on Radio 4. Ernie Ray explores Putin's spiritual beliefs. Another new series on Radio 4 at 6.30pm on Monday, The Unbelievable Truth, is hosted by David Mitchell. The Radio 3 concert at 7.30pm, performances of Beethoven's Symphony No. 3 and Schumann's Piano Concerto in A minor. While Keris Matthews is your presenter of The Blues Show at 9 o'clock on Radio 2. Tuesday, April 5th, brings us another instalment of the sadly topical Putin, The Shallow Roots of Democracy, which looks at his second term as Russian president. The afternoon drama at 2.15 on Radio 4 is entitled The Shell 7, a verbatim account of the case of Shell against Extinction Rebellion in 2019. Costing the Earth, the world's toughest conservationists, follows the amazing people in Kyrgyzstan who protect snow leopards. 3.30, Radio 4. 4 o'clock on Radio 4, Michael Rosen talks about the one's fictional works and language that are now incorporated into everyday speech. The Radio 3 concert on Tuesday at 7.30 contains a performance appropriate for Lent of James Macmillan's Seven Last Words. In Touch is at 8.40 on Radio 4, while at Radio 2 at 9 o'clock, The Jazz Show with Jamie Cullum. Wednesday, April 6th, brings a new series of Life Changing at 9am on Radio 4, in which Moss Hills tells how he found himself in charge of a rescue operation on board a sinking ship with 500 passengers. Legal drama Blame is at 2.15 on Radio 4. The delightful conversations from a long marriage continues, and in fact it's its final instalment at 6.30 on Radio 4. And a choice at 9, The Folk Show with Mark Radcliffe on Radio 2, 
or the changing sound of radio on Radio 4 Extra, which looks at how technology has changed radio. Thursday, April 7th, Slice Bread questions a product's bold claims and starts by looking at the claims for changing to electric vehicles. It's on at 12.30 at lunchtime on Radio 4. The afternoon play on Radio 4 at 2.15 is episode 4 of Our Friends in the North, the radio version in comparison to the TV version that was on in the 90s. The afternoon concert on Radio 3 at 2 o'clock has music by Bach, Elgar, Strauss and Verdi. A mixture of programmes on Radio 4 Extra at 4pm with the Who Done It panel game, Foul Play, followed at 4.30 by Claire in the Community. 5pm it's a fair cop with Alfie Moore. And finally a comic explanation of life's difficulties, big problems with Helen Keane. The blind comedian Chris McCausland hosts a new panel game at 6.30 on Radio 4 called You Heard It Here First. And the game is all about sound and promises to be great fun. While rounding off Thursday, the country show on Radio 2 at 9 o'clock with Bob Harris. So to Friday, April 8th. At 11.30am, Radio 4, Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders begin a new comedy series, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane Austen. Episode 2 of a new thriller, Dead Hand, is at 2.25 on Radio 4. Followed at 2.45 on the same radio station by the first of 30 episodes of Living with the Gods, Neil McGregor explores the role of shared beliefs around the world. Radio 4 Extra for an hour of classic comedy in the evening, Dad's Army at 7pm, followed at 7.30 by Bristow with Michael Williams. While you could listen to Tony Blackburn's Golden Hour, rounding off the week at 7 o'clock on Radio 2. That's it for another week from me. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. Hello, this is Val with my selection of audio-described TV programmes for the week beginning Saturday the 2nd to Friday the 8th of April 2022. So starting with Saturday the 2nd of April. If you missed it yesterday, you can see Earth's Great Rivers on BBC Two at 10am, following the Yukon, which flows for 2,000 miles in North America. Simply Raymond Blanc is on ITV at 11.40am. The chef shares recipes for salads, soups and side dishes. Although not audio described, you can listen to commentary of the women's Six Nations rugby today. Wales versus Scotland is on BBC Two at 4.30pm, kick-off 4.45. The afternoon film on Channel 4 at 4.20pm is the musical Grease, starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. The final episode of this series of Superman and Lois is on BBC One at 5.30pm. Clark's worst nightmare comes true as Edge's master plan nears its grim conclusion. There are three episodes of Midsummer Murders on ITV3 at 5, 7 and 9pm, starting with The Village That Rose From The Dead. The Village of Little Auburn abandoned since the war, is going to be reoccupied 
but a man is found murdered during its grand reopening. Rick Stein's Long Weekends series is being repeated on BBC4 at 8pm. In this episode, the chef takes a culinary break in Bordeaux. On Channel 4, also at 8, the second part of Chernobyl, The New Evidence. Using previously classified KGB documents, this film explores how far Soviet leaders were determined to cover up the Chernobyl disaster. Casualty is on BBC One at 8.35pm. Ian's actions jeopardise his relationship with Chrissy. On Channel 4 at 9pm, the action comedy film The Hitman's Bodyguard. Still smarting from a previous bungled job, security expert Michael Bryce has the chance to redeem himself by delivering a hired killer to court to testify against a despotic dictator. Killing Eve is on BBC One at 9.15pm. Villanelle decides to put her talents towards helping people. This is the Radio Times pick of the day. And now on to Sunday, 3rd of April. Although not audio described, you can listen to commentary of the boat races on BBC One at 1.50pm. After a three-year absence, the women's and men's boat races between the University of Oxford and Cambridge return to the Thames in London. Start times 2.23 and 3.23. Three choices at 8pm. Dynasties 2 is on BBC One. On the plains of Zambia, a cheetah mother must keep her cubs safe while preparing them for life without her. The Speed Shop is on BBC Two at eight. Exmoor Search and Rescue Team has the oldest serving Land Rover Defender in the entire England and Wales Mountain Rescue Fleet. But the 30-year-old workhorse is in need of urgent refurbishment. Titch Cormack and the team set to work as the vehicle must be back on duty as soon as possible. On Channel 4 at 8pm, Inside the Super Brands, Helen Skelton uncovers the inside secrets of some of Britain's most popular brands. The final episode of Peaky Blinders is on BBC One at 9pm. As the clouds of the coming storm gather, Tommy faces the consequences of his actions and experiences. This is the Radio Times pick of the day. A new two-part documentary starts on BBC Two at nine. Thatcher and Reagan, a very special relationship, beginning an exploration of the relationship between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher by Charles Moore, the former Daily Telegraph editor. The Ipcress file is on ITV, also at 9pm. Harry is handed over to the Chinese military, who subject him to a bewildering regime of mental torture. A new documentary starts at 10.20pm on BBC Two tonight, Muhammad Ali, charting the life of the boxer and activist. The late night film on BBC Two at 11.10pm is the political thriller All the President's Men, based on the investigation by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward into the scandal of the 1970s 
which led to the Watergate hearings. Here are the daytime programmes on BBC One, repeated at the same time each day, Monday to Friday. Homes Under the Hammer is at 11.15am, Bargain Hunt is at 12.15, Doctors is at 1.45, Monday to Thursday only, Shakespeare and Hathaway is at 2.15, Monday to Thursday only this week, and Escape to the Country is at 3pm. A repeat of Indian Ocean with Simon Reeve is on BBC Two at 4.15pm each weekday, apart from Wednesday. And Rick Stein's Cornwall is on BBC Two at 7.30pm Monday to Thursday. Monday the 4th of April. The early evening film on film 4 at 6.35pm is the second best exotic Marigold Hotel. Judy Dench, Maggie Smith and company check in for more heartwarming life lessons in this irresistible sequel. Inspector George Gently is on the Drama Channel at 8pm. Bacchus and Gently investigate the rape of a prostitute leading to animosity from their colleagues as they unravel the way the crime is handled by the force. A new series on Channel 4 at 8.30pm. Travel Man, 48 hours in the Basque country. Joe Lysett and James Acaster are in Bilbao and San Sebastian, sampling the food, art and millinery. Three choices at 9pm starting with a new series on BBC One of the drama The Split, starring Nicola Walker and Stephen Mangan. Hannah and Nathan are in the final stages of negotiating their divorce. When Nathan reveals he has met someone else, the amicable separation takes a turn for the worse. House of Maxwell is a new three-part documentary series on BBC Two at nine. The downfall of Ghislaine Maxwell is only the most recent scandal to engulf her family. As this excellent series charts, in the 1980s and 90s, there was also the buccaneering rise and headlong fall of her publishing mogul father, Robert. On ITV, also at nine, the final episode of the drama, Holding. When PJ uncovers the truth behind the body, he can no longer turn a blind eye to those around him in Dunoon. The drama Challenger is on BBC Four at 10pm. The story of renowned physicist Richard Feynman's part in the inquiry into the 1986 Challenger space shuttle disaster. Tuesday the 5th of April. Masterchef is on BBC One at 8pm. Nine more cooks arrive in the kitchen to prepare their signature dishes. This programme continues on Wednesday and Friday at the same time. Saving Lives at Sea is on BBC Two at eight. The RNLI crew are called into action at St David's in Pembrokeshire when a plane makes an emergency crash landing on one of Wales's busiest beaches. The documentary Ellie Simmons, A World Without Dwarfism, is on BBC One at 9pm. 
the five-time gold medal winning Paralympian investigates a pioneering new drug which promises to make children with achondroplasia, Ellie's form of dwarfism, grow closer to average height. The second part of the documentary band, The Mary Whitehouse Story, is on BBC Two at 9pm. The story reaches the 1970s and Mary's battle with the permissive society heats up. Over on ITV, also at nine, a new seven-part series, DNA Journey. Anne Hegarty and Sean Wallace embark on quests to uncover the truth behind their bloodlines. This is the Radio Times pick of the day. The Witchfinder continues on BBC Two at 10pm. Thomasine is stolen away and Bannister fears the worst should someone else try her before he gets to Chelmsford. Wednesday the 6th of April. Several choices at 8 o'clock tonight. Your Body Uncovered with Kate Garraway is on BBC Two. Father of Two Paul is shown augmented reality images to guide him through what happened inside his body when he suffered a stroke. Over on Channel 4 at 8, The Great Home Transformation. Emma Willis and Nick Grimshaw present a new series in which homes are transformed in just three days. Lewis is on ITV3 at 8pm. Lewis and Hathaway investigate a student's murder. On BBC Two at 9pm, the biographical comedy drama Stan and Ollie. In 1953, a washed up Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy embark on a tour of Britain's music halls. On BBC Four at 9pm, Putin, Russia and the West. The second programme features an interview with former Ukrainian president Leonid Kuchma, who tells the inside story of the 2004 elections and admits to being Putin's ally. Now on to Thursday the 7th of April. The final episode in the current series of Dragon's Den is on BBC One at 8pm. This week, budding entrepreneurs seek investment in a movable webcam, a men's skincare range and seasonal decorations. A new series of Secrets of the Museum starts tonight on BBC Two at 8pm. The cameras return to the Victoria and Albert Museum to reveal more of its hidden gems. Over on ITV3 at 8pm, Vera. All is not as it appears when DCI Stanhope investigates the murder of a wealthy bookmaker. Another new series on BBC Two at 9pm, which is the Radio Times pick of the day, Art That Made Us, beginning an alternative history of the British Isles, featuring a host of contemporary artists exploring ancient artefacts that made us who we are. Falklands War, The Forgotten Battle, is on ITV at 9pm. In this documentary, Ben Fogle uncovers the untold story of a small garrison of British Marines and the battle they fought against near-impossible odds during the Falklands War 40 years ago.
And finally, we come to Friday the 8th of April. Grayson's Art Club is on Channel 4 at 8pm. Grayson and Philippa Perry are joined by comedian Mawan Rizwan, who is challenged to create an artwork on the theme of Inside My Head. The Radio Times pick of the day is Pilgrimage, the Road to the Scottish Isles, on BBC Two at 9pm. In this new series, seven celebrities with differing beliefs walk almost 1,000 miles from Ireland to Scotland in the footsteps of St Columba, with just 15 days to complete their journey. Grantchester is on ITV at 9pm. After a murder at a local nursing home, two of its elderly residents go missing. Are they victims too, or were they involved in the crime? Bonnie Raitt, BBC Four Sessions, is on BBC Four at 9pm. This programme is not audio described, but for any fans of the blues singer, you might enjoy listening to Bonnie performing live from Stoke Newington Town Hall in North London back in 2013. The late film on ITV at 10.45pm is the action comedy 21 Jump Street. Underachieving rookie cops Jenko and Schmidt are given the chance to make their names when they are sent back to their old high school to infiltrate a drugs ring, but the new boys don't blend in as well as was hoped. I do hope you find something that appeals to you from my selection. TNF Soundings 